I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is now part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Welcome. It's nice to have you here. Max the dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 160 of this madness. Hope you are taking care of yourself. Hope everybody is okay. We have a great show lined up for you today. Michael Elias is on the program. He has written an amazing book called You Can Go Home Now, which came out in June. I am so excited about this program. And when I got him on the show, I had a fanboy moment. He has had an amazing career, and you're going to be blown away if you don't know his story. I don't want to ruin too much of it. But I'll tell you, you're going to want to stick around for the whole thing because he has written and created and done things that you have seen and watched and read. But we'll get to all that in just a few minutes. First, as always, we have a little business to cover. As you know, we do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday, and there's two things you can do to help us out on the program. First, if you like what you're hearing, leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts, Stitcher, Apple, wherever, and tell your friends about us. We also host the monthly happy hour, which is a ton of fun. You can find the details at theridersjam.com. We're getting ready to announce our September guest very soon. While you're tooling around there on the website, you can buy any of the books from people who have been on our show. Click on the bookshop link, hop on over to our list, do a little search. Every time you buy from one of those indie bookstores from Bookshop, we get a little scratch back, helps us keep the lights on, help. Max, keep his dog food bowl full. 
We also have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up for while you're there. We have book recommendations that go out every month, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings and things that are going on around the web. Also, at the website, you can see we have a Patreon, the Solid Listen Patreon. If you click on that and become a sponsor for us, you'll get commercial-free episodes. We'll have special happy hours some bonus content, plus all of the other content that the other hosts make available. So, Max the dog has been not feeling great the last few weeks. The pandemic has been strange because I've watched my dog get very, very old quickly. I'm very happy that I have been around to spend time with him, but it has been difficult knowing that he's changing in, in this new stage of his life. And if you have pets or if you have ever had a pet, you know they become something beyond family because they bond to you, particularly dogs. They bond to the human and you become inseparable and your mood impacts his mood, his mood impacts your mood in ways that I'm always amazed by. So being locked in the house and having him get sick, we've had a few operations during the pandemic, gonna have to go back to the vet, seeing him struggle to take our daily hike has been difficult, and it is a thing that emotionally has weighed on me because he is such a part of my own emotional healing. Our relationship, for as odd as this may sound, has been very healing for me, and he brings me comfort, and I love spending time with him. He doesn't always laugh at my jokes, not much of a conversationalist, but we speak to each other in our own ways. And we have our own routines, and it is it is a big part of my life, and it is one of the great joys being his human. And in a pandemic, as we're all beginning to, I think, feel this the weight of this anxiety, because we are, we're 160 days into it, we're at half a year, man, like almost half a year, and we know that there's still three or four or five months before we might get a vaccine. Nobody's quite sure what's going to happen. And so all of this stuff is, you know, pushing on everybody. And we all have some version of the max thing going on. We all have our lives still continue, and there's still the things that bring us anxiety throughout the day. And I say all that because I just got done listening, re-listening to both this interview and earlier the earlier in the week, uh, Melanie Abrams' interview, and I was reminded, just listening to, to us laugh and listening to the joy in those conversations and the sort of awe and wonder that comes when you meet people who create and make amazing things and make and create things that you love, how that fills up the soul as well. And... Today's been kind of a rough day, just because Max is a little extra limpy today. He's a little extra old today, and I'm reminded that, you know, we have one less day together. On a typical day, those thoughts come and they make you sad, but they don't always linger. But in the pandemic, you were in the house. There's not a whole lot to distract us, and so you have to sit in that, or at least I have to sit in that. I haven't figured out how not to sit in that. And so interviews like what you're about to hear with Michael and what you heard on Monday with Melanie, 
have been my source of comfort because they are a time to get together and laugh. They are a time to remember that joy still happens. A friend of mine called today and her grandfather's in the hospital and it doesn't look good. She was in tears and just needed somebody to listen. And so I listened. And as happens with these things, in the middle of the crying and the tears, we started talking about stupid shit. And then we're both laughing, and she's not crying anymore, and she's laughing. And then, the, you know, five minutes go by, and the tears come back. And it, it was just like that was the microcosm of my feelings with Max, right, with my feelings with all of this stuff, is that, yeah, there's anxiety, and, yeah, nobody knows what's going to happen, and, yeah, we're all really concerned, and, yeah, bad things are happening to people and animals that we love. And we have to be present with all of that stuff now more than ever, leading into this election. And that's hard. We are not meant to live every second of our lives by being on edge. And, and so it's okay to laugh and to have those light moments as well. It doesn't mean that you're not dealing with the reality of the world. It doesn't mean you're not dealing with the anxiety. It doesn't mean you're not being the kind of person that you want to be. It means you're human, and it means we all need to take a break and remember the full range of our emotions come in. And so that's been on my mind as I was editing this today and sort of thinking about everything that was going on. I know that's not why you're here. You're here for the fun. And so now, without further ado, here's my conversation with the great and wonderful Michael Elias. My brother-in-law uh, is—he's—he's he's from East Germany. I mean, he's—he's he's German, so he was born there. And he was a kid. They sent him over to live with his aunt, and then eventually uh, the rest of the family joined them. But he grew up, and uh, his formative years were in East Berlin. Um, so he's—and he here he is. He's back. Yeah, Happy. and so when I go over there to stay with uh, John Borland, who's my writing partner, and and his partner Amy. John and I were sitting, we were, in, we were on Karl Marx Boulevard and we were, and you know, everybody in Germany, you can go to college till you're 30. You know, it's just a very progressive way to think about stuff. So we're in this cafe, we're drinking espresso on Karl Marx Boulevard. And, you know, we're looking at this building across the street and I looked at John, I'm like, I've only seen this in black and white. It's like, it's Berlin is such a weird place because it's very modern now. But you walk around and all the remnants of that time period are still there. Yeah. And it's you never know, repaired the, uh, is it the Reichstag or the, the church that looks like they call it the broken tooth or something? I don't know. But it, they, I would guess that they didn't because they do a pretty good job of keeping living history there to, to remind yeah. them. When's the last time you, you were there? I think it was two years ago or year, yeah, it was before. Let's see. Yeah, we we were living in Paris for a few years, and then so we went. Uh, yeah, a couple of times we went to Berlin. Uh, um, yeah, so I don't think it's changed much since then. But uh, yeah. we, we had a great time, and we stayed at this wonderful hotel that had a swimming pool uh, that used to be a workers' recreation uh, place, and it had this big, big swimming pool and baths, and every room was uh, kind of refurbished. It was great. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, I had a good time. And and she says it's interesting. And I said, how how is it not being completely fluent in in German? She says, well, one of my husband's complaint is that people don't sp- in their neighborhood don't speak German. <laughs> yeah, it's it is you know. When you travel to major capital cities, everybody other than Americans speak multiple languages, including English. So I was excited to go to Germany because I had taken three years of German in high school and was like, hey, I'm going to get to use my German. And everybody wanted to talk English to practice their English. So I spoke almost no German when I was there. That's funny. Yeah. So where are you? Where am I talking to you? So I'm in Pittsburgh. Um, oh, Carnegie Mellon, of course. That is that is where I work. And where are you at right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, Westwood near UCLA. Uh, yeah. And uh, is that where you're from? Where are you from? You're not from. Uh, from Nobody's from I'm Los from, Angeles. No, I'm from upstate New York, uh, Catskills. Um, little town. Didn't have much. Some farms, hotels, and a state prison. That was it. Yeah, I grew up in a very, my, I think your town was probably smaller. I had about 5,000 people in my town. Yeah, I can brag. I, we had 1,500. Yeah. But in the summer, <laughs> in the summer when all the uh, the New Yorkers came up, it, it, it increased to, you know, I don't know, 10, 15,000. So. so you guys were a destination vacation tourist town. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. what, did you, what did your parents do? Because this would have been back, this was a while ago. Oh, yeah. This was... Uh, my father was the local doctor. My mother was a school librarian. Uh, we were a hundred miles from New York City, and uh, we would go as often as we can to uh, catch up on, you know, see plays. My father loved to go to art galleries, museums. Really? Uh, yeah. So, so it was a very provincial. In one sense, it was very provincial. In another sense, uh, we I always say it was, it was Chekhovian because instead of saying Moscow, Moscow, yeah. we wanted to go to New York, New York. <laughs> um, and at the same time, we had very good, uh, we had really good schools and small. Uh, and there were, th- I think there are four published authors from my class. Um, really? One guy's, yeah, one guy's a playwright, Murray Mednick, and he... Uh, He's he's won OBs and he does a lot of uh, did a lot of off Broadway work. He's still he's still producing plays. Uh, another guy is uh, Andrew Niederman, who uh, was became a writer. And have you ever heard of uh, oh what's her name? See no flowers in the attic. What's her name? Uh, oh uh, I don't know, but I've heard of the book. Yeah yeah, she's a huge bestseller. Anyway. Um, V.C. Andrews. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So V.C. Andrews died and they didn't tell anybody, but they hired Andrew to keep writing. Yeah. So That's he's funny. written, he, at the same time, he was writing his own books. So he's he's got like 30 books under his belt uh, between her and him. So And then there's another guy named Alan Young, who uh, became a very important uh, journalist and writer in the gay community and published a couple of books. So that's three. And uh, there was another guy. Uh, you. Yeah, that's it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's from this class that graduated sixty people. So we had really good teachers. That's amazing. Anyway. So, like, how did your parents end up there? Uh, did you ever ask? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I know the story. My father uh, came back from medical school in Europe, and this is before the war. And there was a guy you're talking about the war. You mean World War Two? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the guy wanted to, uh, doc, the local doctor wanted to uh, quit, uh, retire. And my father's friend from medical school who was up there in the neighborhood in another town said, there's an opening, why don't you take it? And he did. He, he, and the next thing, uh, then there was the war and he went into the army. We moved back to uh, Brooklyn and lived there. And then after the war, we moved back to uh, this little town called Woodburn. And uh, he was the local doctor and actually not really happy uh, because he would have been happier in New York City. But that's where we were. And then I think their lives, they moved to Woodstock and their lives <laughs> took a turn for the better because that was an artistic community and there were uh, painters and writers. Philip Roth lived there. and uh, Whoa. So they had, a, they had a great time there. And then they moved uh, to London where my sister lives and uh, owns a restaurant in London. And uh, they lived happily ever after for another 20 years and then he passed away and my mother continued and then she died and that's it. And in the meantime, I, uh, of course, I was living in Los Angeles all that time or most of it. Uh, but that's and, after you grow up. I mean, that's, you're out yeah. of college. Bob. So, yeah. how, so even though, so your dad's a doctor, uh, mom's a librarian, you have at least a sister, siblings? Two. I have one, the painter in uh, Berlin, and I have one who owns a, a famous restaurant in London called the River Cafe. Wow. Uh, yeah. And she's so, married to an architect, uh, Richard Rogers, who did the Pompidou and all that oh, stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how, like, how do you, and how does art become, I wouldn't, when you started this, I did not expect it to be this arty. Like how, like, were your parents readers or were they just like, did they just enjoy the arts? And so that was no, no, part they of were, what yeah. they did? They were, they were, they were readers. Yeah. Um, they were, uh, my mother, especially. My father was more political uh, in terms of his, uh, reading and uh, so he he gave me my kind of political background and my <laughs> mother gave me a, a love of literature uh, and she, she for some reason she she loved the Edwardians and uh, she loved Virginia Woolf and uh, uh, Siegfried Sassoon so she gave me all those so I had this weird I mean and to me growing up in the Catskills they were you know all that stuff was kind of like science fiction uh, uh, right. fox hunting and <laughs> Right. Society weekends. Anyway, that's, and, and then we would go to New York. Uh, we would visit relatives, their parents, and uh, my father, we would go to see Broadway shows. We would see, uh, we would go to museums and. Uh, so that was just part of the upbringing. Like you oh, guys yeah, were just, yeah. you were part of the, so did in high school, like as you were going through school, did, were you like, oh, I'm going to do this writing thing or I'm going to do film and TV. Like what were you like as a I kid? Think, yeah, I think uh, because hanging out with my friends who were, uh, we had literary or artistic ambitions and we were uh, so, and I think it was the time of the beat generation, you know, so we all we all wanted to be beatniks and uh, imitate uh, Jack Kerouac and uh, <laughs> we were reading on the road and all that stuff. But right. in the meantime, uh, yeah, I did want to be a writer and then I... I went to college and I kind of postponed it. I had no idea really what I wanted to do. <laughs> this is uh, a very common story that I have with writers. Like I wanted to be a writer and then like, eh, I kind of didn't know what that meant. 
Yeah, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I, I had this, uh, maybe it was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd wear a tweed jacket with elbow patches, but that was about it. <laughs> right. It is, I mean, there is a, um, I've told the story, to learn how to write, I used to sit in this cafe and I would transcribe Fitzgerald novels into my notebook. I would just hand write them. Yeah. <laughs> just, and just to like, just, I mean, it was like, it's, I didn't realize at the time it was a cliche. I'm sure I read that somewhere that somebody did it. But like, I was like, well, I don't really know how to do this. And I just wanted to write things that felt great. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, painters did it. Uh, Arshil Gorky, just for the first 20 years of his career, uh, painted in the style of Picasso, Brock, whatever. He, he <laughs> yeah. just, and that's how he learned to do it. He just painted over their paintings and in his own you know, he, and and that's how he became a painter. And so that's yeah, it's that's fine. I mean, I have another one. I mean, a friend who says you you must you know copy down Hemingway sentences. Uh, I mean, you have to. I think the thing is, you have to look at them and say, uh, why is this good? Why is this effective? Right, and, right. And that was sort of what was happening with me as I was writing, like without knowing it. But I think this is sort of the journey that writers go through as they search for their voice, or many writers like. You just yeah. sort of like play performance writer and then you sort of figure out how to do it and then you figure out what you want to say. I think that's a good way. Yeah, yeah. And so I tell you, every once in a while I pick up a book, I'm sort of stuck or I feel, and sometimes I'll, I'll pick up uh, a, a fiction, you know, and read, and not even, I mean, it could be Donna Leon or uh, uh, Michael Connolly, whatever it is, and I'll just read a few paragraphs and say, how did they do it? Uh -huh. How do they? How do they? How do they inject the the thoughts of their characters? What What are they doing in between saying things? I mean, my my the problem for me is I was I wrote so many screenplays and television where you don't have to do that. You're right. just doing action dialogue, action dialogue. You don't even have to describe a room. You don't have to describe uh, anything. You know, because it, and it's it's almost naive to do it because and you can't tell, you can't say to uh, give actors direction. You can't say, um, you know, try telling uh, what's uh, you know a really good actor. Yeah, uh, you Any should. Of them. <laughs> you know, say say this angrily. Right. Are you crazy? <laughs> Don't tell me how to say this. <laughs> I mean, so you can't. Then when you when you start to write narrative fiction. You, you have to really get into that and it's and it's hard so yeah it's that's the difference right yeah i mean i wrote i wrote a bunch of short play or short like films when i was younger uh and i had dated a cinematographer and i was a writer so i when i wrote it i didn't you know i looked some stuff up and i was like oh i'm gonna describe I'm, i did everything that you just said not to do right and yeah. when the director got it he's like ah oh, this is really great and like he's just like xing out whole pages like well that'll just be an establishing <laughs> shot and i was like well now i see why writers aren't allowed on set <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Because I was uh, like, you're ruining everything. He's like, you don't know anything about visual storytelling. I'm like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So uh, you so when you go to uh, when you're when you're finishing up high school, like you sort of have this literary thing. And by the way, it's very cool that there was like 60 people and four of you go on or five of you go on to do this. So that must have been like a help in some way because you weren't a writer doing it on your own in this small place. Like there was a group of you sort of thinking about it. Yeah. We had a great English teacher, 
who say, would say, if I'm boring you, you can go into my office and write. Wow. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? Wow. So, um, yeah, so, so we, sometimes we would. Um, or you, the, the other thing is uh, we also, it was, and the, here's the other thing. We were all, these guys and myself, we were all jocks also. It yeah, wasn't, you had it, to be, right? You had to be yeah. in a small town. You did everything. Yeah. So we didn't, uh, it wasn't this kind of, I mean, special. Yeah. We, we, and, and we had friends. I bet when I came back from my high school reunion uh, 20 years later, uh, um, I, I came back, I'm coming back from Hollywood. And I thought, man, I'm hot stuff. You know, they were going to want to know what's, you know, what's <laughs> uh, Brad Pitt really like or whatever it was. And uh, I, I walked into the room. And this guy came up to me, he says, did you hear about Georgie Fadun? I said, no, what? He said, he's got his own gas station. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good reminder, right? Like I tell people being from a small, I didn't have the career you had, but I worked at Wired during the, you know, during the boom, like I was writing for millions of people, read what we did. Yeah. And, uh, I'd always tell folks, you know, when I go home, everybody nobody there gives a shit about any of that stuff they're talking like and they're all you know when i go home i still see all the people that i grew up with and yeah. zero of the conversation at the table over beers are about what i've been doing with my writing yeah um, and so the escape back home was it was the thing that always made me feel like the rest of it was like the rest of it always felt fake and home felt like okay you can ground yourself and all of that yeah yeah, I don't know if I, you had any of that. No, no, I did. I mean, I, I never. Uh, I mean, you know, writer's fame, whatever. It, but I, right, right. I try to. I, I sort of had. If I look back on the whole thing, I kind of was middle management uh, in in an industry town. Uh, I had my ups and I had my downs, um, and I kept my I kept my friends who weren't necessarily in show business. And that's great. Uh, that's the key, so, though, right? Yeah. So, but then somebody said, "What's your biggest regret?" And I said, uh, jokingly, that I never made, I never made Michael Ovitz my closest friend. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really only need to do that for a few years. Yeah, that's right. Now he he doesn't have any. Uh, or we so, went through a period. Go ahead. When you leave high, where do you go to college? Like when I you're went to, uh, St. John's College in Annapolis, uh, sometimes referred to as the Great Book School. Um, so you were going there for for writing? No, I just you just enroll. You don't. Um, it's based on the uh, uh, University of Chicago curriculum. Uh-huh. It's one in Santa Fe, and uh, it has you. You don't. You have to study. You learn. You study uh, no textbooks, all uh, prime sources. So you read. Uh, the first year is Greek and, and Latin and uh, you, uh, Roman, and you, you study Greek for two years. You study one year French, one year German. You read, wow. uh, you read every, what they call the great books. Yeah. Uh, and you have science and math and philosophy. And uh, by the time you get out, you have this, I think you have a really good education. Not yeah. that you can do anything with it except uh, go become a writer, uh, go to law school. If you want to go to medical school, you have to take another year at least because you haven't had a lot of contemporary science. Um, but you have this education and you've read 
pretty much everything uh, in the Western canon. I think now they've they've added, uh, uh, you know, it was a white male Western canon. So certainly, yeah. But it, it was a really, it was really, uh, it was perfect for me uh, in terms of. And then uh, they also had a good theater. Uh, had no no organized, but we we created our own theaters. Uh, company and we did plays and I decided I wanted to be an actor um, and I went to New York and got a job uh, as a substitute teacher in New York City school system and went to acting school and I lived that life for a few years as an off-off Broadway actor really uh, yeah and I was in a company called the Living Theater um, that was a kind of uh, an experimental radical theater group and I worked with them for years and then at the same towards the end of that I, I got into improvisation and improvisational comedy and I met a friend a guy uh, Frank Shaw and we we were pretty funny together so we became a comedy team and uh, we kind of we tried our we, we created an act uh, it was called Elias and Shaw and we went around uh, uh, you know, comedy store places like you know. Wow! Wow! And, and then we actually we we uh, auditioned and got on the Johnny Carson show. Holy shit! Yeah, the Tonight Show. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. So and 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 then we started doing uh, nightclubs, and, and we were like an opening act, and we were like. Uh, Did and, you make it to the couch? No. Okay, but you got on the show. That's right. No, we didn't. And but we did. I think we did five or six of them. And uh, anyway, one of them, a producer uh, from Hollywood, called up and said, uh, "Who writes your material?" And we said, "We do." He said, "Well." would you like to come to Hollywood and be writers on a show I'm producing? And we said, you bet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and in the best tradition, we, we kind of gave up the act and moved to Hollywood. Uh, and our first job was on a little, little variety show um, starring Dean Jones. Remember him from uh, Herbie the Car? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had a variety show. That was the first one we had, and then we just kept going, and we were we were fast. We were pretty funny, and and as uh, the guy, I overheard him saying, "I like these guys. They're fresh," um, and I knew that would come to haunt me someday when I wasn't. Right. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's know. interesting because the like was you were describing your your university and, and that experience. Yeah. I, that has to be one of the. Uh, 
best grounding factors that you have, like having that breadth of knowledge of story and context, like not that they were teaching you like this is how to write, but just sort of understanding something in depth from lots of different viewpoints must, you must call on that all the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just it, such a great it really way to came think in handy. I'll, I'll tell you, do I have time for like a little story? Do it, do it. You know, this guy, uh, Robert Silverberg, who was one of the great apes of science fiction. So he, he wrote a book called Man in the Maze. And um, I, I love that book. And I said, I, I, I wrote to him and I said, I'd like to option the book and turn it into a screenplay. And he said, no. <laughs> and uh, I said, "That's the wrong answer." He said he wouldn't tell <laughs> yeah. me, but he was being a parent. Then finally, I got really. Uh, I said, "Listen, I know where you got this story." He said, "Where's that?" I said, "This is based on Sophocles' play Philoctetes." And he said, "How do you know that?" I said, "Well, it's actually one of my favorite plays. I really love the play." And he said, "Okay, you can have the option." <laughs> That's awesome. And I said, well, college came in handy. Right. Who knew that yeah. that was going to be the thing that came in handy? Yeah. Anyway, that was so, yeah, that was. Uh, so you go, but so you have this grounding and you sort of, you, it, it, what's, it's interesting that you like, well, I'm going to do theater and then improv to write. Like you didn't really have a, you weren't trying to be a writer. You were trying to be a writer. Or you were. I always just, wrote little stuff along the way. Sometimes I, I sometimes I think, well, I, I came to this late, but it, it turns out that yeah, uh, as I said, like I was, yeah, I was writing in high school and I was writing in college, and and then I got this. Then I, of course, I was I jokingly said the other day, you know, I was earning a living as a writer and working as a writer for so many years before I became a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I had. I know what that means, but explain that to people okay. who are well, not I was, writers. I was writing television shows. I yeah. was writing movies. I was write, creating series. I was doing all this stuff. And uh, I didn't write my first novel till, I don't know, 40 years later. I was uh, in my 70s when I wrote my first novel. But of course, that's, it's, you know, it, this is one of those things where, like, I get annoyed when people are like, Oh, I'm an artist, and what they mean is they're a painter. And then if a writer says that I'm an artist, if you say artist, people think visual. And I'm like, well, no, like art is really, you know, all of the stuff that we create. And so, like writers tend to think of like if you if you write fiction, you're a writer, and everybody or an author, right? Everybody else just kind of writes stuff. Yeah, um, like we don't think of all because you you are a prolific writer. Like you've well, done a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, I it's, never. It's funny that it's not till seventy that you're like, oh, I guess I'm a writer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I never. I tell you the thing, but that part of that is because most of my writing career, pre-novel and pre the one play I wrote, uh, is has been collaborative. So when you you write it, and which makes it really easy, you know, you have a writing yeah. partner. Yeah, that's that's not that makes it easy. What? Sometimes it makes it easy. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, if I had you got a, a good one. It's easy. Yeah, I mean, it could be a good marriage or a bad marriage. Yeah, but, right. So, <laughs> and I've had both. I've had many, many collaborators and a few real writing partners. And uh, my last one, Rich Eustace, and we were together for a long time and did head of the class and wrote a few movies. That was a great relationship and a, and 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 a great uh, partnership, but and collaboration. But boy, it 
you know, if I couldn't think of something or I didn't feel like writing or my I felt my brain was fired, he would be doing it. And yeah. he would sit down and he would write. I mean, what we, we had planned. And then he would say, uh, I'm out of gas, your turn. And I would go and I would just take over as a typewriter. And uh, that's, but that's really different from writing by yourself. Yeah. Uh, and the reason writing by, I think, you know, that having done both, is writing by yourself requires um, two primal instincts. One is, look what I made, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then saying, it ain't that good. <laughs> or how do you fix it? But the, the, and the difference between the, you know, the amateur and the professional is the amateur is locked into, look what I made, mommy. Right. Isn't it good? And the professional says, now, now, now the work begins. Yeah. So, that has been a theme on this program is that every, you know, you know, you're a writer when you realize writing is actually what comes after the first draft, yeah. right? The first draft is just getting everything onto the page and it's not really anything. Yeah. Uh, the real writing in the craft comes in like, okay, like what have I done? That's right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And not being upset, you know, when I, Oh God, I was, I was intolerable as a young journalist. You know, I was in my early 20s, like writing for this international magazine. And God loved the copy editor that would try to change something. I would lose my mind because I thought that I had written these precious, beautiful, you know, things. And then yeah. as I got older and became an editor and was doing stuff, I realized that I would like to go back and smack the shit out of myself. Because... <laughs> <laughs> right. Because that kid didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and was saved by collaboration. Yeah. So you are out in Hollywood. You get, you're doing some, you're like openers or like, are you mid? Are you, are you openers? Or are you second? Uh, um, like when you're doing your comedy stuff. Oh, no. We, well, we, we pretty much, uh, we came to Hollywood and we did a few shows and we did a few kind of, we, we played the troubadour for a little bit. We, but basically we had given, we gave up the act. That Got was you. it. And we just, writers and then we started selling off our material uh like we had a couple of sketches and we sold them to uh, love american style and oh we, really yeah so we by the uh, by the time we you know we sort of got rid of all and then the thing is then i was on a show or we were on a show uh and steve martin was uh, a writer on the show and we became friends and he said i'm I want to be a comedian and I'm doing comedy and I, I don't want to be a, you know, comedy writer anymore. I want to write. So I said, well, I, I like your, I saw him and I said, I like your material and I, it's sort of, uh, I get it. Uh, can I write for you a little bit? And he said, yeah, sure. And I would have an idea and I would write it and give it to him. Uh, no money, just friendly. And then in one day he said, I'm going to really do this, uh, more seriously and uh, I'd like you to continue writing for me and with me and uh, I said absolutely and that that was that was that and then um that had to be I mean just the arc of his career and the writing like that had to be a sort of an or I hope it was an amazing collaboration in time well I, I always enjoyed it I and I never uh, and and it was so much he, he had by that time he had a had a little house in Aspen and I would go up on a weekend spend the weekend with him and we just walk and ski or whatever season it was and 
we would write together and, or just take long walks. And he would say, I got an idea or uh, what about this? And then I would say, that's good. And I, I have an idea and we would do it together. And, uh, and then when he, the jerk, um, I was now writing with uh, Rich Eustace. We were kind of, and, and I got a call from Steve and he said, um, Paramount uh, turned down the screenplay of the jerk. And they want a, and, and my managers or producers think it needs a big rewrite uh, and we can get a deal at Universal. Uh, do you want to come up to Aspen and rewrite it with me? And I said, yeah, sure. And I did. And I, we, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks, three weeks. And we rewrote the screenplay and Universal did it. That's, that's how that happened. Sure, that movie did okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure did. My, not, not that this was part of this, but uh, my dad's favorite movie, the one that he's made us watch a million times is Roxanne, the Steve Martin. Oh, Roxanne. I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. And that was like, the, that was when I, because I grew up listening to his out like Carlin and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. um, I didn't, I've never interviewed Steve Martin, but I interviewed George Carlin. Uh, it's actually where this show started with the interview with him. Uh, and, uh-huh. and, and that was the moment that I was like, oh, he, this isn't just like weird comedy. Like there's actually a lot. Like this guy's smart. Like this guy's really smart. And, yeah, yeah. He was a philosophy major. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, as a as a 15 year old, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you know, reading his books and the stuff in the New Yorker, and I'm from Appalachia, so the uh, the music stuff, the banjo stuff, is amazing to me. And some, and you know, the thing about him is he just keeps surprising you. Uh, who knew he was going to turn out to be one of the best banjo players in the world? Who yeah, knew right. That's a, what I mean. You know, have a couple novels. Who knew he was, you know, all this stuff. It just kept, it just, uh, so I don't know what he's doing. What, what, I don't know what's next. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. I, He's one of those annoying people. And fortunately, he's not a contemporary. But like, I have friends that are like that, that I'm like, I'm not good at one thing. And you're the best at what you do at like five things. And like, yeah. give me some of that. Yeah, okay. Right. So, uh, so. It, but you had written, you'd done screenplays before that, yeah? That was yeah. your first screenplay. No, my first was uh, The Frisco Kid with Gene, Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, with another guy, I wrote a screenplay uh, for a uh, guy, uh, adapted a novel by a guy named Iceberg Slim. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Pimp. Pimp? Yeah, Pimp. But we did Trick Baby. Trick gotcha. Baby is about the two con men who, uh, and one of, they're both black, but one looks white and he wants, and that's the nature of their con. Uh, so that, we did that. And then uh, what else? Then I, wow. I, I hooked up with Rich Eustace and we, we did Serial based on a Syrah McFadden. We did uh, Young Doctors in Love. And Which I've seen like a thousand times. That, I think that's a really funny movie. I'm I, you- yes. That was one that, like, my friends and I watched over and over again growing yeah. up. Yeah, that's Gary. I mean, I, I mean, we wrote we wrote the script, but I tell you, Gary Marshall edited so much great stuff. He was, yeah, I, he's pretty good. Oh, <laughs> so, great. you are now. You're sort of in. Like at this point, are you just doing screenplays? And like, is that sort of what you? No, well, I have a, I have a trunk as they, or I have uh, stuff on the shelf or or on my computer then I'm still trying to get going. I mean, screenplays. 
Um, had you kind of settled into that's what you wanted to do, or or was it just no? I, this I, is I just the world novels. that I'm in now. No, I'm I'm in. I'm just writing. I mean, I got you know the the uh, most recent. You can go home now, and I've started another one, and I have another one that um, is finished. But because it's not a uh, thriller, it's a kind of Romana Clef about me about my life in Hollywood, about a, uh, I, I took all my stories and I fictionalized them so I could tell the truth. And I mean, no, no. So I mean, back when you're doing like the jerk and stuff at that time, are you only writing screenplays in? Yeah. Screenplays and television. Yeah. And but did secretly, you fall into that or like, I mean, so was that like, once you got there, was that the goal or was that just where you sort of found yourself and you were well, good at it? And so that's what happened. Well, I can tell you, I think it's, it's, it's almost Darwinian uh, in Hollywood. Uh, you adapt or die. And uh, when I first came here, it was the, when I first came here, it was variety shows and imitative or genre sitcoms. And I knew, I had a sense that uh, I, even though we could work in them, they were not. It wasn't going to last. So I wanted to do movies. I want. I, I wanted to write movies. So at the same time that we were doing uh, Glenn Campbell uh, show and uh, Leslie Uggams, these musical variety yeah. shows, uh, I want. I knew that era might end, and I wanted to write screenplays, and that's why we wrote the Frisco Kid. Gotcha. So we always had something we were doing to earn a living and writing and having fun. And then something that was kind of private and, and led to, uh, you know, becoming a screenwriter. And then, uh, my partner and I broke up, uh, we split up and I became partners with Rich Eustace and we started producing, creating and producing our own sitcoms, but at the same time, also keeping an eye on or, uh, aiming to write screenplays and while that was going on, and we were successful because we had head of the class yeah. for five years. Which also was a, one of my favorite shows. Howard. Hes so I'm from Cincinnati. So Howard Hessman, holds oh. a, he holds a very special place in Cincinnati's heart. Oh, wow. Cincinnati, yeah. He and he's Dr. Said, Johnny Fever. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So he, uh, by the way, they're doing it. They're rebooting it. They're doing another version for HBO Max. Really? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't have much to do with it, but I'm kind of uh, consulting here and there. But basically, they're, they're writing a pilot or they've written the pilot and they're writing episodes. So wow. it might be a new, a new head of the class. Um, so, so you guys created that? And were you, were, once it got picked up, were you like the head writers on that? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was our show. We were, we yeah. were the, uh, I guess they call it, now they call us showrunners. Yeah. Uh, and we we were the executive producers and creators, and we we stayed. You know, we we micromanaged it for five years uh, like through Billy Connolly, like through. Yep. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and uh, then we did another show with Billy, and then and then Rich and I split up, and in the meantime, or during that period, I wrote and directed a Showtime movie called Lush Life, um, with uh, about jazz musicians in New York with Forrest Whitaker and Jeff Goldblum. I mean, you've um, worked with a lot of really talented, funny people. Yes, I did. Like, just like, just listening to the stories, like Gene Wilder, Steve Martin, Forrest Whitaker, like, 
that must be it must be nice to both make write something and then have people like that taking the words and turning them into you know the next iteration of what it is it's uh yeah it's great <laughs> yeah it's great and the funny thing very funny thing but the thing is you know writers have a kind of level of uh i don't know emotional <laughs> display whatever it is you, you we're not actors right, so, right. Uh, when i i i had written this um, a monologue uh for forrest whitaker's character and he performed it and i as he was doing it in front of the camera i said to my i almost said to myself gee who wrote that <laughs> and the reason is because it was nothing like i imagined it would be because right. he took it and he's an actor. I'm merely a, a writer who writes, you know, I can imagine anger, I can imagine this, but boy, he took it in a place that is like, wow. So that's the real joy for me yeah. of seeing people uh, take your words and, and, and say them. That, that was a pleasure. One uh, of the things that I'm doing on the show is, because I listen to a lot of audiobooks now, which is not a thing that I ever used to do, but if I'm walking a dog or something, and there are some really super talented voice actors who yeah. will do, you know, 40 characters, and it's just them, you know, reading the book, doing it. And, at, like, I don't write plays. I don't write, you know, I don't write things that are performed. So my enjoyment of theater is just as, you know, I just enjoy theater. But something about audiobooks, I have that feeling that you have, which is when I hear them reading a really good voice actor do a book, I'm like, this is like... I don't even know if I would enjoy the book now if I sat down and read it because <laughs> you've performed this audio play and my brain is now hearing all of those people. You know who's great at that is uh, uh, John Le Carre. Get a, if, get a book that he reads. Yeah. He's fantastic. And the thing, he, he does the women brilliantly. Yeah. So anyway. There's a, there's a woman named Bonnie... I think her name is Turpin and she's won like the last four, you know, audio book performance, whatever. They were books that I would not have listened to. They were like pop culture, superhero books. And it's sort of like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a satirizing that genre. So it's really kind of funny. Her performance is, I've never heard anything like it. And I grew up in Cincinnati where like we had WLW had audio plays when I was growing up. Like I'm used to hearing those kinds of things. And she's so amazing that it's just, um, it is transformative in terms of what I think the book, how the book is different when it's done well in an audio version. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to mine. Uh, I don't, I don't, can't remember the name of the person who's going to be doing it or as, has done it because it's coming out next. Oh, time. so he, so you, so you're, so now we're sort of head of the classes in like the mid eighties. Yeah. Like we're that you're sort of right. doing that stuff. Showtime mid eighties. So yeah. when do you, um, you start sort of transitioning? I don't know if that's the right term or not, but no, not good, out of it, I, but you, you began doing some other stuff as well. Right. Yeah. Plays. Well, I, I started writing, uh, I call it a friend. It was a friendly divorce from television. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And whether it's connected to a couple of things, whether it's age or, um, and my partner and I split up and they, then they always want to know who's the funny one and uh, <laughs> who was. So I, I did some other shows. I would, um, I think a couple, uh, 
produced or executive produced. It just took over a couple of shows for a season, but basically I was I was transitioning uh, out of the business, or uh, certainly out of the uh, out of television, and I started concentrating more on screenplays. Uh, an option I had a kind of business model where I'd option a novel uh, uh, and write the screenplay, and then try to set it up as a film, uh, either directing it or producing it myself. So I did that, and uh, one this. Uh, Robert Silverberg, uh, science fiction novel called Man in the Maze. Uh, so I, I wrote it and sold it to Mel Gibson for, uh, and he didn't make it, obviously. Uh, and I'm still trying to get it set up. I, I optioned a uh, book about the life of Christopher Marlowe by Anthony Burgess. Came close to that a couple of times. And then I started writing short stories. Oh, in the meantime, uh, at some point in 2008 or so, I wrote a play, uh, or I had written this play, and I got Paul Mazursky to direct it. It ran for four months in L.A. and was about to go to New York when the recession hit. Uh, And then... It's it's amazing to me that you... So David Foster Wallace said that... You know, I come from the magazine world, and he said, look, the, the more you study writing, the more you realize writing fiction and writing nonfiction is, is the, basically the same thing. We just, we've decided that nonfiction is real, and it really happened, and fiction isn't. But we're all sort of navigating, trying to, you know, make sense of the world in some way. But you, like, you've taken on radically different genres, and I don't know if the transition was hard, because we're just talking about it, but, like, going from, oh, I'm going to do improv comedy to now I'm going to write on a variety show. Now I'm going to do movies. Now I'm going to do TV. I'm doing short stories. Like those are like the techniques are diff. Like how hard was it to move through all of those? Mm. I think, I think I was cursed with multiple interests. <laughs> um, and so I'm interested in Elizabethan theater politics. I'm interested in, always loved sci-fi and here's a sci-fi novel that is based on a greek tragedy um i am interested in crime fiction so i refuse to be you can't you can't pigeonhole my or 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 deny yeah. me my interests and if something is really interesting i want to do it so now i'm uh, my next novel is going to be about it's going to be a, I guess, a thriller murder mystery set in Maui that's going to involve ethnobotany and the work of uh, Terence McKenna and uh, uh, magic uh, plants uh, and and stuff like that. So I don't know. That's really interesting shit, man. I want to and if, I can, if I can marry that to a to a, a thriller. And have a guy figure, trying to figure out who killed his wife and all that stuff. Then, then why not? Yeah, it's just it is. There's a theme that comes out on the show, and I used to tell students and young writers when I'd work with them, like I can't teach you how to be a writer. Like I can't, I can't put you in a classroom and say when we're done with this, you'll you'll know how to be a writer because writer. Yeah is really about having empathy and being curious. Like if you really want to understand something and are able to sort of get outside of your own lens and see it and, and, you know, through as many lenses and as you can, 
writing's easy at that point. It's the stuff leading up to it that's hard. It's, so it's just, it is so fascinating to me because so few writers, and particularly writers today, you're sort of put in a genre and you're put in a style. And if you want a career, you kind of have to do that one thing. Um, and you did, you know, this yeah. sprawling, amazing career of like, oh, I'm just sort of, now I'm going to be really good at this is, <laughs> it's fascinating to me just because it's so out of the realm of what, what the business is for us today. Uh, well, uh, I'm having a good time. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and so you don't start writing novels until just a little bit ago. Yeah. Yeah. The first one was 2000 and published in 2013. So that's seven years ago. <laughs> and that's, that's about a lost city uh, in the Amazon, an Inca city. So that's kind of um, Michael Crichton's science fiction yeah. and uh, study of, uh, yeah. So, and so uh, you're just, at that point, you're like, now I'm going to just start writing novels. Like, was there anything about the, the form that you were like, oh, I'd like to see if I can tell a story in this? Or did you just think, well, I haven't done this yet in my career, and I'm also interested in novels? Uh, I have a confession, which is that, when I came back from Peru, I wrote a screenplay. And then I was telling an agent about it, or my agent, and he said, you know, that would make a good novel. Why don't you try it? And I said, I never wrote a novel before. He said, try it. So I, I basically adapted my own screenplay into a novel. Um, and That's I thought it would good. be easy. Yeah, I thought it'd be easy because I had the characters, I had the story, <laughs> I had the ending. It was, it was harder. It was harder than starting from scratch. It was uh, because you yeah, already had things in your head that you're like, this needs to be this way, even yeah, if it wasn't also, working. The, the real, also, uh, because it's an entirely different, it's an entirely different skill to write yeah. a novel as opposed to writing a screenplay. Because uh, all of a sudden, I had to become introspective. I had to describe. I had to. I couldn't say, uh, uh, you know, f uh, fade in uh, a, a shack. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, whatever it is. So, right. yeah, and it was really hard. And I, uh, in the same way that uh, how do you, you know, I've adapted novels into screenplays. But anyway, that's what I did. Then I said, okay, my next, then I started writing these short stories, which were, and then I turned the, sh the short stories, which were all about, uh, as I said, the same guy, uh, a writer in Hollywood, his adventures, yeah. and uh, I turned that into a novel. And then at the same time, I got this idea about, um, and I became very interested in violence against women and uh, and also the notion of uh, revenge in our society and why we, tr we, we, uh, we are so, uh, we, we I idealize it it's so prevalent in our culture and the, na the that is the nature or that is revenge and yet at the same time we're told it's not it's it's not proper to have it um we we all our heroes we want the bad guy to, the good guy to shoot the bad guy um and we with little regard for you know what I would say that's our definition of justice. So, right. come on, Denzel, come on, uh, uh, Clint, come on, whatever. And and that's the nature of so much in our culture. So I wanted to write about that, and write a, and, and found a way to articulate that in in a 
against what is another horrific, uh, or is a horrific uh, thing, which is uh, feminicide and violence against women, and uh, set it in a women's shelter. Oh uh, man, that's where the new one. That's the that's that's, you can go that's home the, now. Uh, yeah, it's coming out called "You Can Go Home Now." It's about a series of a, a cop, a young female uh, homicide detective in Queens. Uh, is going through a list of uh, a, a pile of cold case murders, and she notices that four of them are men who were murdered, and their wives or widows all have the same alibi. They were in a women's shelter when their husbands were murdered, and that and that begins the novel. That's right, and she goes undercover into this shelter, posing as an abused, battered wife, to see if there is a connection between these men who have been murdered and this shelter. And uh, she comes out, I don't can't give the plot away, it changes her life, spending all that time in the shelter. So- in the meantime, Go ahead. Let me ask, do you find, because that this is obviously not a beach read, right? Like this is a heavy looking at lots of, whether you meant for that to happen or not, like lots of discussions about these things happening right now in the world. Yeah. Um, do you find it easier or, this is a stupid interview question, so please treat it as such. Um, is it easier to deal with these kinds of issues in books as opposed to like TV, like TV or screenplay? Because you can be so internal and you can ins- explore like, Yes. Feelings and thoughts and emotions that sort of give clarity to what you're trying to say. Absolutely. And if, and the thing is that uh, if somebody said to me, turn this into a screenplay, I wouldn't know where to begin. And yeah. I, I, I really wouldn't. I, I'm out. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, uh, and and the uh, and the, the, so and the internalization, the internalization of this this woman, because I have to tell you that the, the other thing is her background is. Uh, her father was murdered. Her father was a doctor who was murdered by uh, a right-to-life fanatic. And you're, hitting all, you're hitting all the buttons. I hope so. And <laughs> yeah. she, she's looking for him. And that's why she became a cop. And that's her game. Yeah, and she became a cop so she could find this guy. Better find him. And when she finds him, she intends to kill him. So that's the, that's her theme, or yeah. whatever. That's her obsession, revenge. Yeah. And yet she had, now she has to deal with being in a situation where there are all these women and children who are in a place, and they're terrified also because they can't leave it. And if they do, there might be a man waiting outside to kill them. Right. So that, that's what the novel is about. I mean, my character, uh, she's a young, this, this woman cop, um, goes undercover into this. Uh, she's um, she's also pretty funny, and I can't help that. That is, she's acerbic. She's sure. and and she's tough. Uh, and I think I think you gotta like her. Um, and when the, that's what the title is, you can go home now. Is what the women are told. You can oh. go home now. As you were 
coming up with the idea for this was was this how did you put all those pieces together well because that's a lot yeah um i wanted somebody who was obsessed with the notion of revenge and at the same time i wanted somebody who all of a sudden realized or was put in a position of identifying with people who were in danger and how could she help them? She could. Um, and then I did a lot of research, not that I could go into a woman's shelter, you can't, uh, but I did a lot of research. And uh, at the same time I was writing it, there was a lot of stuff coming out about, uh, or there were football players, uh, who were getting arrested for spousal abuse. Um, the, uh, and it turns out, by the way, the worst person you can be married to in terms of potential uh, abuse is not an NFL player, but a policeman. Yeah. You are on to getting battered and beaten and abused go up like 40% immediately. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. It's... That's the most dangerous, <laughs> one of the most dangerous relationships. And in, 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 and then the other thing that's going on now is that because of the uh, COVID-19 uh, quarantines, uh, spousal abuse is going up because yeah, yeah. women can't get out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of, uh, so the, I touched on all those things in the book, or not the last one, but touched on the whole yeah. thing. And also... Uh, the the effects and the women and the children and having someplace safe uh, is really important. And I think uh, you can go home now. The title is uh, we, I Grew Up on You Can't Go Home Again by Thomas Wolfe. Yeah, right. And I mean, I, this is obviously that's the first thing you think of when you see the title. Yeah, so this is this is the opposite of it. You can go home. And those are the sweetest words you can hear if you're uh, an abused woman. If you're a refugee, if you're exiled, um, you can go home now. It's uh, it's been great talking to you. Like, I very rarely get super excited about people just because I'm a writer and I've been doing this for a long time. And like, I love writers, but um, but I was really looking forward to this interview. And that is no disrespect to all the other people that I've had, just because <laughs> your career was so fascinating to me, and and that you hit all these different levels and genres of writing that is difficult to do and you had success in them. Um, and we were laughing and sort of talking. And so I'm sure it didn't, like that takes hard work to do that. Um, and I'm not sure you could have done it had you not had that collegiate education, right? That you sort of had this broad knowledge of all of these different things. Like that's to me where it sort of was like, oh shit, not a lucky break, but like how fortunate to have that kind of education. Yeah, I was lucky. I had, can I, I have time for one little story? Yeah, we got we got as much time as you and I. Oh, okay. I just tell yeah. you that um, there was a uh, somebody said, "How did you get to go to this place called St. John's College?" And the truth of the matter was, is that there was a television show uh, called called Twenty One. Yeah. And it was Charles Van Doren. Yes, they made a movie out of it. They made a movie. So that was, my father and I loved that show because here we, was 
and he was the smartest man in America. And I was that show was on as I was kind of getting ready to leave high school or applying to colleges. And my father says to me, find out where he went to college. And I did. And it was St. John's College. No, really? So I went. And then my freshman year, he got busted. I was going to say, like, and then, but it's good, it's good that you got there first before you were like, oh, I know. Shoot. I know. And for, for those young people in the audience, you can look up 21, but it was a quiz show that was, it was fixed, right? Like, he got yeah. caught for fixing it. Yeah, and the guy who uh, who was really the, the, the smart guy, his name was Herb Stempel. He just died. That's why all this came back to me. So he, he died a few weeks ago, and it all came back. That's why. <laughs> and he was the guy they said, and he knew the answer to the question, you know, but yeah. he, had to give, he had to give the the wrong answer so Van Doren could win. Yeah, and he got, the guy got mad, right? Isn't that how it ended up falling apart? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's that's such a fascinating story, um, and one that, like, I'm I'm almost fifty, so I'm young enough to have seen a lot of like I used to skip, you know, when I when I'd skip school, which I did quite a bit. Uh, Love American Style was always on TV during the day, so like, you know, I'm sure I've seen yeah. some of the stuff that you guys did there because I've seen yeah. them all many times. Oh, this one was this one was with Broderick Crawford and Herb Edelman, and it was about two guys who who. Uh, sign up for dating, computer dating, and the and the computer uh, mix, uh, matches them. And because one guy's name is Francis, the other guy's name is uh, Marion or something, whatever. And and they show up. The guy shows up with flowers, <laughs> and it's these two guys. This is best friend. And no, no, it's just two guys. Oh, it's just two random guys. Two random guys at the computer matched up, and uh, the computer thought that one of them was a gotcha. was a yeah one was was female one was male. Anyway, that was the sketch, and it turned out that the computer was right. They actually were perfect for each other. That's funny. Uh, Love in the dating computer was the name of that. Is that what it was? That was that was what the name of yes. I looked that up immediately because I'm like, oh, well, okay. I'm positive I've seen that. So. All right. uh, it's just it's just been wonderful and uh, talking to you and hearing a little bit about the the process and stuff that you went through and well, it's, a, it's a little I, bit different than some of the shows that I do because typically they're authors. So for me, getting to talk to somebody that's done all of these different things made my whole day. Uh, well, you made it easy, <laughs> and I had a good chat with you. I really enjoyed it. I just yeah. uh, you did great. you have it that was michael elias whose book you can go home now is out now i hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we loved recording it and as much as i loved having him on the program it has been one of the highlights of doing this show it's also why i do the show so that i can talk to people like that um and just fanboy out for a little bit before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors. Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes on Monday and Thursday, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time... I will see you around the internet.
we have to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstruction. But on this floor, Beyonce, Michael Jordan, Issa Rae. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Come and join us on Life Writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life. Life Writing is available wherever you get your podcasts.